following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Today, we are wrapping up this series. So we've had this uh, six-week now, it is, series on the cross, on the death of Jesus. And we're uh, wrapping that up today ahead of Easter Sunday next week. And what I would like to do today, we've looked at all these metaphors in the Bible, in the New Testament, to describe the work of Jesus, the death of Jesus. And today I want to try and pull all of this together and try and gather up as best I can all these various images, uh, at least the essence of what these images communicate to us, and tell one coherent story of the atonement. Uh, it's always going to be less than perfect because the cross really exceeds our ability to explain it. It is a mysterious and wonderful thing that God has done. We can't ever put it into human language. But I want to try and gather some of the threads together that we've talked about over the last few weeks and tell the story of the atonement, hopefully in a way that makes sense of uh, some of these images and metaphors in the Bible. Now, the way that I want to do that is using these three vases here. And I want to start by talking not about Easter, but about Christmas. It might sound a little bit out of order this time of year, but I want to start not with the death and resurrection of Jesus, but with his incarnation, going back to when God became human. Because I think if we grasp as best we can what happened in the incarnation when God became human, we are far better able to grasp what happened in the atonement when God reconciled us to himself through Jesus. So, I want to use this as a way of thinking about the incarnation, when God became human. And the way, uh, you might not be able to see this fully, but that's all right, I'll explain it. So, I want you to imagine that this vase here with the uh, orange liquid in it represents God the Father, okay? The identity of God the Father. The middle vase with the clear water represents Jesus, Jesus the man. And this blue water vase here represents all of humanity, okay? Now, so here's the question. What happened... When God became a human being, what happened in the incarnation? Okay, here we go. You ready? First thing, two things happened. The first of them is that God the Father poured his identity into Jesus. Okay, so God the Father pours his identity into Jesus. Of course, Jesus has always been God. That's true. Jesus has always been the eternal Son of God. But when Jesus became human in a unique way, God the Father poured his identity into his Son so that, as Paul the Apostle says, in him, in Jesus, the fullness of the deity dwells. God is fully present in his Son, Jesus. Okay? Makes sense so far? Right. Now, the second thing that happened in the incarnation is that God poured our identity into Jesus. Now, what I mean by this is not just that God became human, although that's true, but that Jesus carries all of us with him. All of our identity is poured into Jesus. The best word to describe this, I think, is representative. Jesus became our representative. He represents our lives before God. That's why in the New Testament, Jesus is called the new Adam. He's come as the pioneer of a new humanity. Just as Adam represents all humanity, now Jesus represents all humanity. He carries us in his body, so to speak. Even though you weren't there 2,000 years ago, but symbolically, mysteriously, Jesus carries our identity with him 
through his life. He is our representative. He represents Adam and all those who have come from Adam. And in particular, Jesus represents the nation of Israel. That's like a subset of all humanity. Specifically, Jesus represents the nation of Israel. That's the significance of Jesus being called the Son of God. In the Old Testament, Israel was the Son of God. God calls Israel, my son. Now in the New Testament, Jesus comes. He is the Son. He is the new Son of God, the one who carries the identity of Israel in his body and in his being. So Jesus represents Adam and he represents Israel, and that's important to keep in mind. So we have this shared identity, or maybe you could say identity fusion now, where God the Father pours his identity into his Son. God pours our identity as human beings into his Son, and this is who Jesus is. He is God and he is fully human, carrying both natures within him. And so to see what the significance of the cross is, all you need to do is take this idea and play it out through Jesus' life and see what happens. So let's do that. Before we get to the cross, let's look at what this means through the life of Jesus, particularly through his public ministry, so from his baptism through to his death. What's happening through Jesus' life? Or maybe ask the question this way. Where is God the Father as Jesus is living, as he's healing, as he's speaking, as he's debating, as he's doing life with his disciples? Where's God the Father? He is present in Jesus. Okay? He's not just standing at a distance, watching the whole thing happen. God the Father is present. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Where he's working, I'm working. Where I'm working, he's working. God the Father is present in the life of Jesus. So as Jesus is living, what's happening? God, for the first time, is experiencing what it is to be human. God's experiencing humanity. First time in history this has happened. God experiences what it is to get hungry, thirsty, tired, sick, weak. To experience human companionship on a human level to experience the limitations of a human body. God the Father experiences this in and through His Son, and so He deeply identifies with our humanity. That's why Hebrews says, we have one who can empathize with us, because He's been tempted. He's been tested in every way that we are, yet without succumbing to sin, but He's been tempted and tested as we are. So He's been in our shoes. God knows what it is to be human So he can come and identify with us, stand in solidarity with us, especially in our weaknesses. So God identifies with humanity through Jesus. And then on the other side, as Jesus lives, where are we? Well, we're in Jesus as well. Our identity is in him. Now, I know this is a hard thing to get your head around. You say, well, I wasn't there. I'm here. I didn't live 2,000 years ago. But symbolically, Our identity is in Jesus. He was our representative. And so our life is in his life. And what Jesus is doing, this is why the word representative is quite good, because Jesus is acting as our representative. He is representing our lives to God. He's representing the story of humanity. He's representing the story of Israel. Jesus, through his life, is reliving and retelling and representing the story of Adam and Eve. He's reliving it, the story of faithfulness to God. And then, it, and then it reaches a decision point where Jesus, just like Adam and Eve, had to decide. 
This is why the, the Garden of Gethsemane is so significant. Jesus reaches the same point. He's in a garden, just like Adam and Eve were in a garden. He reaches this crucial moment where now he's got to make a choice. Is he going to bow the knee to the will of the Father? Or is he going to take things into his own hands? It's basically the same choice that Adam and Eve had to make. And you can imagine all heaven holding their breath. What's go- Here's the new Adam now. What's he going to do? He carries us all with him. What's he going to do? And Jesus makes the right choice. Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus gets it right where Adam and Eve got it wrong. He represents the story. He reenacts the story. And he does exactly the same with Israel's history. Jesus retells, reenacts the story of Israel. You see this most clearly, I think, in the temptation of Jesus. As soon as Jesus is named as the Son of God at his baptism, God the Father says, this is my Son, then Jesus is identified with the nation of Israel. He's taken into the wilderness. And in that desert experience, Jesus does in 40 days what Israel did in 40 years. He relives the wilderness, relives the temptations and the trials and the journey of Israel, but now he's getting it right where Israel got it wrong. He's remaining faithful to God where Israel was unfaithful. He's rebuffing the uh, temptations of Satan where Israel succumbed to them. Jesus is reliving in his own life the journey, the story of Israel. And the implication for us in this is that we are all caught up in the life of Jesus because he's our representative and we are, in a sense, participating in his life. When Jesus lives faithfully before God, his faithfulness is our faithfulness. As Jesus lives in righteousness before God, his righteousness is our righteousness. As Jesus lives in obedience to God and conformity to his will and perfect submission to the Father, his obedience is our obedience because we are in him. Our life, sharing in his life. So even before you get to the cross, atonement has begun. Even before you get to the cross, Jesus' life is having benefits for our life. His obedience is becoming our obedience because he's carrying us all with him. He's the pioneer of this new humanity. He's the new Adam, and we're being carried along in his obedience. And it's all flowing to us now as as the ones who are identified with Jesus. We are benefiting from his life, his obedience. He's retelling our story. He's representing our life as it should have been lived. Now, all this brings us to the cross. And this is where the whole thing reaches a big crescendo. Hopefully this is where it's all going to come together. Here's the question. First question. Where was God the Father during the crucifixion of Jesus? I think that is one of the most important questions you can ask about the cross. Where was God the Father during the crucifixion of Jesus? Now, maybe the best place to go for an answer to that question is Matthew 27. Just flick open there for a moment. This is one of the last statements Jesus makes from the cross. And he says it in Aramaic. Matthew 27, 46. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, for a long time, I assumed that what that meant is that God had literally withdrawn his presence from Jesus. That God had walked away. That he'd turned his back on his son, he'd turned his face away, and he had withdrawn his presence from his son. But then I looked a little bit more closely at these words. Jesus, when he says that, is quoting from Psalm 22. Flick back there if, you, if you're able to. Keep your, keep your finger in Matthew 27. Psalm 22 Those words are straight from the first verse of that psalm. 
Let me just read you the whole of the first verse of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning. Now, clearly here the psalmist is in anguish. He is forsaken by God, but there's no sign here that he's being abandoned by God. There's no indication in this verse or in the whole chapter that, that the psalmist is being abandoned, that, that, that God has withdrawn his presence. Why has God forsaken him? Because he's not saved him. That's what he's complaining about. God, you've forsaken me because you have not stepped in to save me. God hasn't fixed the problem. God hasn't alleviated the suffering. That's the sense in which Jesus was forsaken by God on the cross because God didn't step in to save him, because God didn't answer his prayer to take the cup of suffering away from him, because God didn't send down an army from heaven to defeat the Romans. But there's no indication in the Gospels or anywhere else in Scripture that there was a moment when God the Father literally withdrew his presence from Jesus. That just didn't happen. To be forsaken is not the same thing as to be abandoned. Jesus was forsaken because God didn't save him, but the relationship between father and son was never breached. It was never broken. In fact, the New Testament tells us the opposite. 2 Corinthians 5.19, the apostle Paul makes this succinct statement. He says, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. Just let that sit with you for a minute. Where was the father? during the crucifixion of Jesus. God was in Christ. In Christ. Where was God during the trial, during the flogging, during the walk to Golgotha, during the crucifixion, during the death of his son? God was in Christ. Yes, God was the one who handed his son over, gave his son to die, but that doesn't mean God remained uninvolved. That doesn't mean God stood back at a distance and watched. God immersed himself in that act. God involved himself in that act. Where was God on the cross? He was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. And how was he doing that? By suffering. Now, the idea of a suffering God is not very comfortable for us. We prefer to think of God as dispassionate, unable to suffer, unwilling to suffer. If anything, we prefer to think of God as the one inflicting the suffering. But the story of the cross is above all the story of the crucified God. The story of a God who did not consider it too much to descend down into the depth of our humanity in the form of his son, take upon himself the full physicality of a human being and suffer the agony of death on a cross. That's the God whom we worship. And because Jesus is the representative of all humanity, because he carries all of us with him in his death, God not only entered into the suffering of one man on the cross, he entered into the suffering of all of us. Because Jesus carries our identity with him, the cross was God's gateway into the suffering of all human beings. Because he became a co-sufferer with Christ on the cross, God the Father becomes a co-sufferer with us now in the present. Because he has suffered in the past on the cross, 
He suffers with us now in the present and has gained this deep, deep solidarity with us, not just in our humanity in general, but particularly with us in our pain, in our suffering, in our identity as victims. God, because of the cross, suffers with those who suffer. He feels alone with those who feel alone. He feels wounded with those who feel wounded. He grieves with those who grieve. He's betrayed along with all those who are betrayed. He feels that. He enters into that. He immerses himself in the anguish that you are going through right now. He even immerses himself in the experience of being God-forsaken. This is a beautiful irony of the cross. God even knows what it is to be God-forsaken. Get your head around that. God has been God-forsaken on the cross. He knows what it is not to have your prayers answered. He knows what it is to feel like God's a billion miles away. He knows what it is to just sit in the darkness and the silence and wonder why God's not coming through for you or at least explaining what's going on. God knows because he has been there in and through his son, Jesus Christ. He's experienced it and he experiences it with us now. He sits with us even in our God-forsakenness and enters into it fully. Jürgen Moltmann tells the story of a survivor from Auschwitz who witnessed the hanging of two Jewish men and a boy. And the suffering of the men was very quick. They died quickly, but the suffering of the boy lasted about half an hour. And several minutes into that agony, a man behind him called out, Where is God? Where is God now? And the guy recounting the story said he, he, he heard a voice rise up from within him and answer, Where is God? He is there. He is hanging there on the gallows. See, that's our God. The God on the gallows. Some people expressed a similar sentiment after the Christchurch earthquake. As people asked, where is God? One of the answers that I thought was brilliant is, he's in the rubble. That's our God. That's the significance of the cross. Where is God? He's in the rubble. He is the God on the gallows. He's not a God who just looks on from a distance at your life and just says, well, I know how you feel. It's going to be okay. Gives you a pat on the back. He doesn't give you platitudes. He doesn't give you this general kind of it's going to be okay sort of speech. God immerses himself in your life and in your suffering because of the cross. He enters deeply into it. That's what it means in the Bible for God to be described as compassionate. Compassion to suffer with. He doesn't just stand at a distance. He suffers with us. He sits with you in the darkness. He stares with you into the blackness. And he puts his arm around you and gives you the gift of his presence in the middle of it all. All because he has suffered in the body of his son. Now, come around the other side of the table. Here's the second question to round out the picture. If God the Father was in Christ on the cross, where were we? Well, we were in Christ too. Our identity was in him. You know that old song, were you there when they crucified my Lord? I used to think the answer to that was no. I mean, it's a stupid question. Well, I wasn't there. Of course I wasn't there. What are you asking the question for? But recently, I've come to believe maybe the answer is yes. Maybe I was there when they crucified my Lord. Maybe my identity was wrapped up in Jesus so that I died with him. Certainly the New Testament uses that language. You died with Christ. Not just Jesus died for you, but you died with Christ. 
Somehow we share in that act. We are there. Our identity is in Jesus and we are participating in his death. Now sometimes the word that Christians use to describe this is substitute. Jesus was our substitute on the cross. And that's true, but it's not true enough. There's a better word, representative. Come back to that word again. I think it's far better to describe who Jesus was. Let me illustrate it to you this way. Imagine that you're watching an All Blacks test. And at a certain point in the game, there's a substitution. Richie McCaw comes off, Sam Kane goes on. Okay, now that's a straight substitution. Straight one player replaces another player, okay? But now imagine you get to the end of the game and the All Blacks win. And you stand up excitedly and you turn to the person you came with and you say, we won. Now what do you mean we won? You weren't playing. You weren't on the field. You weren't wearing the jersey. How can you say, but isn't that the most natural thing to say? And no one's going to look at you strangely. That's true. We won. But how is it true? Because you are represented by that team, if you're a Kiwi. Because the All Blacks embody the spirit of a nation. Because the All Blacks carry the weight of a nation. And because in a mysterious way, we are associated with them and we are identified with them and they represent us as a nation. So it's quite true and right and natural at the end of the game to say, we won or we lost because we are somehow carried in them and their victory is our victory. That's why when Jesus died on the cross, it's the most natural thing for us to say we died. Because he died. As our representative, we can say, we died because he carries me with him and my identity is fused to him. And I was somehow there in Christ on the cross. My identity was present in his identity. And when Christ died, my identity, my old identity of sin and selfishness and self-determination, that died with Jesus. That was buried with him. That was crucified with him. That was taken away on the cross. That old identity in Jesus, he carried it with him. He bore it in his body. He took it to the grave and he left it there. And so to put all of this together now, this is how we are reconciled to God. Because on the cross, God the Father is in Christ. And on the cross, we are in Christ. And so in the body of Jesus, we meet God. That's where reconciliation happens. Paul says as much in Ephesians 2. In one body, he reconciled both Jew and Gentile to God through the cross. We're present in Christ. God is present in Christ. And as our old identity of sin is crucified there, God embraces us and he is reconciled to us. And it's because of that God can now come to us and suffer with us in our weakness. It's because God has suffered for you on the cross that now he is able to suffer with you in your life. Because God in Christ has suffered for you as your representative, now God comes to you and suffers with you as your brother, right there alongside you. And the very fact that he's present with you in the dark places and the deep valleys is testimony to the greatest gift of all, that we're reconciled to God. And even though he doesn't offer to solve all our problems, fix all of our situations that we're in we know we have the same hope that jesus had god didn't abandon jesus on the cross he's not going to abandon you either but he enters into our lives just as he entered into the body of his son to share in our suffering because he has reconciled us to himself through the cross now 
can we go just one step further with this? We haven't talked much in this series about the resurrection, but you really can't understand the cross without understanding the resurrection. So let me just take this one step further. And again, the same analogy holds true. All you need to do is just run this through the life of Jesus and see how this plays out. So in the resurrection of Jesus, what is happening? God the Father, where is he? He's the one raising Jesus from the dead, and he's also present in Christ. As Jesus is raising from the dead, God is identifying with us all over again, but no longer in our fallen state, now in our resurrected state. And God is experiencing the first taste of resurrection. Jesus, the first fruits of all those who are going to be risen from the dead. God is identifying with that new life in the resurrection of Jesus. And where are we? In the resurrection. Again, we're in Christ. We are in Christ. Paul says in Colossians 3, Since you have been raised with Christ, set your sights on things above. We share not only in the death of Jesus, we share in his resurrection. You know, as you picture Jesus coming out of the grave on Easter Sunday morning, don't just think of him one man coming out. Think of him leading a whole procession of all of us, all the redeemed, all the saints. You know, Paul says in Ephesians, he ascended on high and led a host of captives. He led us out of slavery. He carried all of us with him as the pioneer of a new salvation, the pioneer of a new humanity. God led us all out of the grave on Easter Sunday morning. We were raised with Christ. What has happened to Jesus has happened to us. We were raised with Christ, and guess what? It keeps going. Now where's Jesus? He's ascended. He's in heaven. He's sitting at the Father's right hand. So where are you? You're in Jesus. Ephesians 2, we are seated in the heavenly realms. And can you hear the New Testament texts clicking into place as you get this idea in your mind? We are seated in Christ now, in the heavenly realms. Our identity is in Him. We share in His life. We share in His death. We share in His resurrection. We, are share, we, we share in His ascension and in His present place before the Father. So now we share in that beautiful relationship that Jesus is enjoying right now with the Father in heaven. We share in that proximity that He has to God. It's not just that Jesus ushers us into God's presence. We share in Jesus' own relationship with the Father because we are enveloped in Him. And we share in Jesus' mission as the church, the body of Christ in the world. Our identity is in Him, so we're His hands and His feet. And we're going to share in His identity even when He comes again. We're going to share, as the Bible says, in His inheritance. That'll become ours too. We will be co-rulers and co-priests with Christ as he rules over the new creation. We're going to share in it. Somehow we're even going to share in the final judgment. I don't know how that's going to happen, but the New Testament takes us there as well. All because our identity is grounded in the identity of Jesus. You are in him. In the book Life of Pi, some of you have seen the movie. I don't think this bit's in the movie, but right at the beginning of the book, there's this scene where Pi is musing about different religions discussing them, and he talks about the Christian view of atonement. He says, I tried to imagine Father saying to me, Pi, a lion slipped into the llama pen today and killed two llamas. Yesterday, another one killed a black buck. Last week, two of them ate the camel. The week before, it was painted storks and gray herons. And who's to say for sure who snacked on our golden agouti? The situation has become intolerable. Something must be done. I have decided that the only way the lions can atone for their sins is if I feed you to them. Yes, Father, that would be the right and logical thing to do. Give me a moment to wash up. And Pi says, what a downright weird story. What peculiar psychology. Now, of course, what he's doing is making the Christian view of the death of Jesus sound ridiculous. 
Sound like a, a mean, horrible father sending his son to the lions needlessly in an act that never really atones for anything. But that is so far from the biblical view of the cross. The biblical view of Jesus' death and resurrection. The cross is not the story of a father needlessly, capriciously throwing his son to the lions and then just watching back, separated from the whole thing. The cross is the story of a God who gives his son to the world and then dives in, immerses himself in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, immerses himself in the suffering of Christ so that he can suffer with us and gain deep solidarity with every one of us as victims. And the cross is not the story of a son who just suffers for himself. It's the story of a son who takes our identity upon himself and suffers for us as offenders. Not just as victims, but also as offenders for all the ways in which we're guilty and culpable and part of the problem. Jesus takes those things upon himself, suffers for them, so that we can be reconciled to God. That's a story I think that's worth telling. That's a story that's worth living out this Easter. And so as we head into this week, as we head into Easter week, building up to Good Friday and Easter Sunday, may we be reminded of the, of the great truths that emanate from the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, that God has suffered for us as our representative, that God has suffered with us as our brother, and that we have died and risen with Christ. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. God, you, you leave us amazed at what you have done. All we can say is thank you. And we receive afresh those incredible gifts, the comfort of a God who suffers with us and the presence of a God who has suffered for us. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.
This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.